Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, and I'm a children's book author. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we use a book to consider what does the natural world look like after human beings have abandoned it? I was so intrigued by this book, which is by journalist Cal Flynn. It's called Islands of Abandonment, Nature Rebounding in the Post-Human Landscape. It's not your typical straightforward nonfiction climate change manifesto. Instead, it's an exploration of places that we've left behind, places like Chernobyl and the Korean demilitarized zone and slag heaps in Scotland. Cal delves into the history of these places. They're strange, cautionary tales, but she also finds hope and beauty in the devastation. Yeah, she's a journalist, but she writes like a poet. Plus, she's got that amazing Scottish accent. I know. I was so sad that I couldn't join you for the interview. I had to take an unexpected trip to Louisiana to see my folks, which I'm very glad to have done. But it's one of those moments when I wish I could have been in two places at one time. I loved hearing the recording, though. And I know our listeners are really going to enjoy this episode. Well, it was a great conversation, but I missed you. I had no one to pass notes with. No one (laughs) there to ask the questions I feel shy about asking. (laughs) Clementine wasn't groaning in the background. Oh, she missed it too. (laughs) I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, luckily, Cal is a delight. Yes, and she's so impressive. She's an author, an investigative journalist, and a McDowell Fellow from the Highlands of Scotland. She's worked as a reporter for the Sunday Times and The Telegraph and has contributed to publications including Granta, The Guardian, The Times, The Observer, and others. Her first book, Thicker Than Water, was one of The Times' best books of 2016. Islands of Abandonment is a finalist for the Wainwright Prize and was one of Washington Post's best travel books of 2021. Just one quick explanation before we get started. Early in the interview, we talk about 17th century wastelands. And you should know that back then, the term meant unspoiled natural places like fens and swamps and marshes, not places of dereliction like it does today. So the meaning has shifted entirely. Okay, on to the interview. So at one point in the book, Cal's talking about human beings and the planet today. And she says, we're in the midst of a huge self-directed experiment in rewilding. I asked Cal what she meant by that, and here's what she said. So the amount of land around the world that is falling into abandonment is, I mean, it's on a massive scale. We see two separate things acting in concert at the moment. One is that many countries in the developed and also the middle-income world are beginning to see a drop-off in the fertility rate. In many countries, especially in places like Japan and Korea and parts of Europe, the populations have peaked and are, are now actually falling. And we've also seen, and this is for the last few decades, we we see um, rural populations leaving in favor of the cities. So especially when you look at farmland and especially when you look at the less wealthy areas, you do find these enormous tracts of land that have been falling 
into abandonment and sort of being very slowly reclaimed by forest often, but sometimes just grassland or scrubland. So the future is abandoned, you know, when you look at how this is playing out around the globe. In the first chapter of your book, you describe the Broxburn Bings in West Lothian, Scotland. And for listeners who don't know, they're hundred-year-old slag heaps the size of mountains. They're piles of gravel waste from oil works that used to exist there. I'd love it if we could use the Bings as an example for our listeners of the regrowth that happens after places are abandoned by humans. Can you walk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. Because the reason I put them so early in the book is that they're a kind of perfect example of a key ecological concept, which is um, primary succession. So the Bings start off as being essentially completely sterile piles of gravel, very little nutritional value for plants. Mm -hmm. But over time, um, these tiny seeds rain down or are spread there by birds. They begin to sort of randomizing process by which other plant species begin to get established on a place like the Bings. And as decades pass, these different species sort of fight with each other and play out land grabs and all sorts of things, the fauna begin to trickle back in as well. And so what we find on the Bings is this incredible sort of redemption story of this post-industrial site, really sort of disliked locally for many years, definitely considered eyesore sites. And actually what's happened is that they've become incredibly biodiverse right under people's noses. So we have all sorts of species, you know, birds nest there. We have foxes, hares, skylarks singing, especially lichens do very well there. Mm -hmm. So there's some very nationally rare species that can be found on the bings. And they really have benefited from being ignored. The bings that have been ignored the most are the ones that are doing the best. Yeah. You know, one of the things that struck me at one point in the book, you're describing 17th century wastelands or what we're called wastelands in the 17th century. And you wrote, the lesson in this, I think, is that what feel like self-evident truths about the world around us can in fact be culturally specific, moral judgments we are imposing upon the world around us. If we want to do the best for the environment, what we need is a new way of seeing, a new way of looking at the land. Yes, yes, that's it. I suppose it's learning to recognize that the judgments we pass on the world around us are probably learned, culturally specific, as I say there, and that we might think very different things of them in, in 50 or 100 years. And so what I'm doing is sort of holding this up as a bit of a warning, which is, you know, if you're taking part in very interventionist conservation methods, are you sure you're right? Because we've been wrong so often in the past and we've done so much damage to the world around us thinking that we were doing right. So we talked there about wastelands. So this is things like wetlands or um, peat bogs, things that were just considered a bit of a waste of space and they would be drained or built upon. And those are now considered to be incredibly important, not only for biodiversity, but especially for carbon sinking. You know, we deeply regret a lot of the damage that we've done to wetlands and are trying to sort of repair them and regenerate them. And, you know, so I think that's the sort of warning from the past, which is we thought we knew what we were doing and we didn't. So I, I guess it's just be careful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I do want to talk to you about invasive species later on in this conversation, but I'm remembering from your book, there's some extraordinary statistic about the number of invasive species that originated in botanical gardens or something about that? So um, there was a study in 2011 
which showed that 34 of the plants which were listed by the IUCN as being among the 100 worst invasive species worldwide, more than half of those are known to have escaped from botanical gardens. So a lot of these species were being sort of moved around the world and then kind of make a break for it outside. You know, the second that people sort of looked away, these are often very um, now almost like infamous or notorious species. So mm -hmm. for example, you have like water hyacinth, which is really causing a lot of problems in a lot of countries around the world, including in Java, where it's spreading like wholesale across lakes and rivers, like smothering like a weed mat. And then you have, gosh, there's a species called the Lantana camera, which I came across in Tanzania when I went to go visit an abandoned botanical garden there. And that, again, that's a, a very notorious species. It's actually very pretty. It's mm -hmm. pink and yellow little flowers and it climbs around. But what it does is it sort of climbs up on other plants and then becomes this dense mat and sort of pulls them over yeah. and spreads across hillsides like that. And so although it's it's pretty and it, it does offer especially things like pollinating insects, a lot of food, people tend to hate it. And that's one of the species that has been spread a lot through botanical gardens around the world. I had a similar experience in the early 1990s. I was in southern India on a barge on a river and we came to an, a total standstill because the waters were so clogged with water hyacinth. And again, they were beautiful. I remember thinking, you know, this is the most romantic thing I could possibly imagine. So beautiful, smells so good. But it brought a river to a standstill, and I think we didn't move for a day. So you know, it's now I understand that it was problematic. <laughs> but I definitely want to return to this topic. But before we do, I would love to talk about. Um, there's a very simple illustration in your chapter about deforestation and reforestation that shows the changes in forest distribution in the United States over the last 400 years. So basically, there are four maps of the contiguous U.S. One from 1620 one from 1850, one from 1920, and then one that's present day. And each one shows how much of the land was covered by forest at that time. I'm just going to say it blew me away, but I would love you to describe what those changes were and what they signify. Yeah, essentially we see this huge forest in, in 1620, especially in the eastern half of the US and also in the Northwest. And then what we see over the next three centuries is a huge chopping away of this forest. By 1920, the continent is looking very bare. There's still some good forest up in the Northwest and there's some bits in Florida, but otherwise a huge, huge swathes of the forest that was there in 1620 have gone. Yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna interrupt and say to our listeners, basically the map goes from green to white. <laughs> it was almost all green and then it was almost all white. It was really dramatic. Absolutely, absolutely. But what we've seen since then, and this kind of blew me away a bit while I was researching the book, is that there's actually been this enormous regrowth in forest since 1920. One of the areas that is most impacted is like New England, which has gone from, yeah, as you say, almost white to being really sort of dense green again. And you see the forest cover there, I think it's gone from around 30% to over 80% now. And that's due to the move in farmers by 
the early 20th century, a lot of the farmers were kind of moving out of New England and, and going into the Midwest and just leaving those farms to go fallow. And the forest has come back very fast, I mean, on sort of historical scales. And we see this not only in the US, but we see this all over, especially the former Soviet Union countries, but in many countries around the world. Geographers talk about this idea of the forest transition, which is essentially this kind of model that a country will lose forest through its sort of developing years. And then at some stage, it sort of turns a corner and forests start to regrow. And then in a third of countries around the world, we're seeing a regaining of forest cover. In around a th another third, that forest cover is currently staying stable. And it, we hope to see a, a regrowth soon. But we're still losing forest cover in around a third of the countries around the world. And a lot of those are tropical. So of course, that's a very bad thing to be happening. But it, we are seeing a, a major improvement in forest cover worldwide. Um, it's often discussed in the context of this being degraded forest. And I think that is true. But I think that that word, that particular sort of scientific term or geographical term, encourages us to somehow feel like this is not proper forest. But it, it is. And actually, these young forests pull down a huge amount of carbon from the atmosphere. So it's really good news for the world that, you know, these huge expanse of uh, abandoned farmland around the world that that is currently acting to take carbon out of the atmosphere. Right. And is carbon capture from the trees and the earth and the seas, is that the cure for global warming? To some extent, I would say it's more of an amelioration. We simply can't go on emitting carbon at the scale that we're doing now. We couldn't grow enough forests in the world to be able to do that. We also need to be sort of like really battening down the hatches on carbon emissions as well. That's really important. I can't get those maps out of my head. We'll post them on our Instagram and Twitter so everyone can see them. The reforestation of the planet is a good example of the complexity of human-driven climate change. The fact that so much of the planet is becoming reforested with trees that capture carbon is reason to feel hopeful, right? But it's just one step in the right direction. And of course, we need many more steps. Another complicated topic is invasive species. You touched on it briefly in the interview, but Cal has a fascinating exploration in the book of how human beings introduce plants and animals from one part of the globe to another and what the consequences can be. Sometimes the invasion is on purpose. You know, European colonizers would often bring plants from their home countries to the countries they were colonizing. And sometimes it's inadvertent. Rats were indigenous to Asia and they spread across the globe as stowaways. Yeah, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> I know, it's one of my favorite fun facts. Um, Amani Tanzania is a good example of what happens when non-Indigenous species become invasive. So there's an abandoned botanical garden there with a lot of non-Native trees that have escaped and kind of spread into some nearby old-growth forest. They're crowding out species of trees that aren't found anywhere else on the planet, which is a problem, right? But what do you do? Do you cut down thousands of trees? Because that has huge consequences, too. Yeah, it's so hard. And sometimes invasive species can have an upside. Cal gives the example of abandoned plantations in Puerto Rico, where the non-native trees are acting as a kind of nursery and enabling the native trees to flourish. So it's definitely complicated. And there's a lot of debate over what to do in each situation. Yeah. Well, okay, let's get back to the interview back in the United States and into cities. In 2014, a presidential task force chaired by three prominent leaders in Detroit 
compared urban blight to, quote, a malignant cancerous tumor, unquote, and said that unless the entire tumor is removed, it will grow back. I asked Cal first to define urban blight for us, and then we moved on to a discussion about what's wrong with that kind of reductive thinking. This is, I think, basically a kind of US-specific phrase, and I found it such a provocative idea because blight to me is, you know, the stuff you find growing on potatoes or on, on leaves. You know, it's um, an agricultural disease. And the way that people talk about blight is like a metaphor for somehow this rotting away of, of a neighborhood or society and that you would see this in the abandonment of buildings. Mm-hmm. And in Detroit, especially, people talk about tackling blight and the way that you tackle blight is to, to pull it up by the roots or, you know, you snip it off. And this is the philosophy that's gone behind um, demolishing a lot of uh, vacant buildings and derelict buildings. And also in, um, I suppose, trying to keep these areas of um, quote unquote urban prairie looking neat, so cutting the grass and so on. The problem with using metaphors like this is it's very easy to then start thinking that they're exact metaphors. And I think what we've found in other cities that have seen abandonment and dereliction is that some of the things that people do to attempt to arrest social problems can make it worse. So in Detroit, but also in Glasgow, there have been these programs by which you would knock down a lot of buildings because they're substandard housing. And then you build these brand spanking new, we would call them estates and and you might call them projects, I think. Um, And in Glasgow, they have sort of very specifically figured out that yes, dereliction in buildings and ruin around is bad for mental health and physical health and crime. But the busing of people out of the city into new estates and into new towns has been very bad for the social fabric of the city. And so there's a lot of what we call excess mortality in Glasgow, which tends to be down to so-called diseases of despair. Researchers now think that a lot of what was happening during the sort of modernist fervor for new architecture, new building, trying to restructure human society might actually have made it quite a lot worse. So I think that we can learn from both of these places. They teach us a lot about what it means to be from a place, what it means for something to be home and what a healthy home might look like. And that might not necessarily be very much to do with what it looks like, but it it is very much to do with, you know, do people feel safe? Do they feel comfortable in their home? And do they feel kind of rooted to place? You know, like so many people that I spoke to in Detroit, even in these neighborhoods that might be quote unquote blighted, did not want to leave. And that's because this was their home and they'd been there for years and they had so many good connections and they had a really good community locally. And that is, is kind of maybe intangible or certainly not necessarily visible, but that's incredibly important to a city. And, and I did find, you know, while I was in Detroit, that it was a, a, a city with an amazing spirit and people were really friendly. Yeah. And um, yeah, I really loved um, being in Detroit. I'm thinking about Constance King, whom you visited in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, at her house there. And it, it's exactly what you're describing, that she had stayed there and stayed there as the houses around her, some of them were knocked down. And I think you said, if there is a cure for blight, this is it right here in her house, which is a very moving part of your book. Yes, she had been, you know, she'd been in this house since she was a child and the neighborhood had kind of fallen apart a little bit around her. And what she would do is she would go into her 
former neighbor's house to try and keep it looking neat and keep what she described as like rags up in the windows, like like curtains to make it look lived in. And she did through these means sort of managed to keep the house safe for quite a long time until one day somebody realized that the house was derelict. Somebody broke in and then very quickly you will find that once a building has been breached in that way, then it will go into quite steep decline. So people will break in and, and maybe scrap or squat and so on. And so she had, yeah, put in a lot of effort to keep that sense of of a place being lived in. And she was just sort of hanging on in, in there. Uh, yeah, I, I find her story very moving. Yeah. And speaking of home, I grew up in New Jersey. You described the pollution of Arthur Kill, which is a tidal strait that runs between Staten Island, New York, and Union in Middlesex counties in New Jersey. The waters of Arthur Kill were thoroughly poisoned by the waste of countless factories over the 20th century. And there are toxic chemicals like DDT and something even worse that I'd never heard of called TCDD, which are loaded with dioxins and PCBs. So let's just say it's really, really, really bad in those waters. And yet... Here's where we cue Jeff Goldblum. Life finds a way. <laughs> Can you tell us about, is it killifish? Yeah. And rapid evolution. Yes, exactly. So I was interested in the Atlantic killifish, which is a fish that has been studied in some depth up the eastern coast of America because of its amazing skills at popping up in really unexpected very polluted industrial places. Normally, they're considered indicator species because they are quite sensitive to pollution. And so that's one of the reasons why scientists were so surprised to find them in places like Newark Bay, which are quite notorious for the amount of long-lasting organic pollutants that can be found in the water. What the killifish show us is the sort of way that humans are like inveigling themselves into the evolutionary history of other species. So killifish are, are very numerous and they also, I suppose, evolve quite quickly. They breed quickly and there's, there's quite a lot of um, changeability in their genome. And so what happens is that there's a bottleneck at some point when the normal killifish can't survive in the water anymore, but maybe one or two of them might have genes that allow them to be a bit more able to withstand this toxic onslaught. And so they continue to survive, they continue to breed. They're not always healthy examples of killifish, but they are breeding killifish. And then you end up with these populations of slightly genetically distinct killifish in places like Newark Bay, but in a number of other harbors all up the East Coast. And what they show us is the ability of certain species to be able to adapt to some of the most incredibly toxic environments, things that you really wouldn't think that they could or should be able to survive in. And so it gives us a sense of how nature is constantly responding to the onslaught that we have been putting it under. And it's not so much that we should say, oh, phew, well, the whole world can just recover, you know, and get used to it. Because I think many species can't, mm -hmm. but it, these are the kind of species that are going to do well in a very human impacted environment. I would really like to ask you to read your entire Rose Cottage chapter aloud. It was oh, so wow. amazing. <laughs> but since our podcast is only a half an hour long, I can't do that. So instead, could you please tell the story of Swona Island and its cows? Sure, absolutely. The Rose Cottage chapter is about an island called Swona. It's between the archipelago where I live now, the Orkney Islands off the north coast of Scotland, and 
the north coast of Scotland. It's in what we call the Pentland Firth. I was interested in Swona because it was abandoned in the 1970s and the last inhabitants left a small herd of domestic cattle which have been living on the island, totally feral or wild ever since. They've become an object of scientific interest because these fully feral herds are, are quite unusual. And so their behavior is of interest and also, you know, like how they survive because the climate is pretty wild up here. So there are no trees. They tend to get by sheltering in ruined cottages. And in the winter, when there's not very much grass, they will eat seaweed. They act a lot more like maybe wild deer or wild horses. So they have a very obvious social structure with a sort of king bull. And every so often he has to head off rivals who are coming up. And then they also have sort of a dominant female. And so it's a completely different social structure to the one that most of us know when we think about these sort of relaxed cow cud chewing automaton, I think, as I call them. Yeah. Right. That there's nothing going on inside those giant heads of theirs. But in fact, left to their own devices, there's quite a lot that seems to be going on inside those giant heads. Yeah, they seem to have really quite a, a complicated thing going on, and they're pretty wily. <laughs> that Rose Cottage Cow chapter may be my favorite part of Cal's book. Can I please tell the story of how it became abandoned? Absolutely, please do. Okay, so Swona Island had been farmed since at least 3500 BC, or maybe even before. But by the 18th century, only nine families were left there. And then by the 1920s, only one of those families was left, the Rosies. So the Rosies fished and farmed, they built their own boats, they manned the lighthouse, and there were two parents and five kids who all ran wild all over the island. In 1935, the dad salvaged enough material from a wrecked cargo ship to install electricity in the house, powered by a windmill and a diesel generator. So for news and fun, after that, they listened to the radio. But by 1957, there were only three siblings left there, twin brothers Arthur and James and their sister Violet. It was said in 1957 that Violet hadn't spoken to anyone outside the family for 20 years. Oh, my God. I know. I know. Just <laughs> picture it, right? So uh, Arthur died in 1974. And at that point, James and Violet were elderly. They weren't well. And so they packed what they could carry and boarded a boat to South Ronaldsea Island, which was nearby, with the expectation of coming back. Okay, and now I have to quote Cal. Last of all, almost as an afterthought, they turned to the barn and opened the gate, letting the cattle loose to fend for themselves until their return. Oh my God, and did they return? No, no, and that's why the cattle took over the island and completely changed from being, you know, sort of dumb, pleasant enough, giant lumps of cow to being these wily, aggressive creatures full of personality with shaggy coats that live in houses. I have chills. Don't you think that right there is a novel? You and I have to write that novel. <gasps> Do you mean it? Be because I totally would. And especially if it means we can go to Swona for research. I absolutely mean it. You heard it here first, everyone. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We love reading the ratings and review. So please do. And it's so helpful. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Cal on Instagram and Twitter at Cal Flynn and online at calflynn.com. 
Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out our new and improved podcast website, which we love so, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.